Well, this morning, we turn our attention as we continue in our series in Revelation to Revelation chapters 6 and 7. Aaron read for us chapter 6. We'll look at chapter 7 here in just a moment as 6 and 7 kind of comprise one literary unit in uh, Revelation, uh, specifically the opening or the breaking of these seven seals that sealed the scroll that was in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne in that heavenly throne room vision from Revelation 4 and 5. Friends, so far in Revelation, we haven't hit too much that's been all that difficult. But now, we're kind of in the thick of it. So buckle up. Uh, I have to say, I've, I've, uh, I, I think I said before, I, I know the reason that most pastors uh, wait a long time in their ministry to preach from Revelation, and it's not because they're afraid of preaching from Revelation, it's just that there's so much other outside reading that goes along with it. Uh, I, I have more commentaries that I'm considering in, in, uh, in, in thinking about how to, how to preach and to teach Revelation than, than I do for most other uh, uh, sermon series. It's just a thick book with a lot of symbols that are not always easy to interpret. But now as we get into kind of the thick of it, the meat of Revelation, the stuff that everybody likes to make much of, uh, we, we start here with the opening of the first seven seals. Now, the setting for this vision and the setting for all of the rest of the visions in Revelation is still that heavenly throne room that we saw last week in Revelation 4 and 5, that place where God and the Lamb are seated on the throne, surrounded by myriads and myriads of angels, God in all of his sovereign power, uh, chaos ordering uh, uh, divinity is, is the centerpiece of, of what is, uh, John is going to see in the rest of Revelation. So don't forget that everything else that John sees and John communicates to the churches in the remainder of Revelation is from this vantage point from the the presence of God in his throne room. At the end of Revelation 5, as we saw last week, the throne room was awash. It was just full in worship from all of creation. At the appearance of the conquering Lion of Judah, who is a lamb that was slain, who has authority to take the sealed scroll from the hand of God, who's there on his throne. Now, as we approach the remaining visions of Revelation, there are some uh, who, in, in reading and interpreting Uh, this book in particular, take a very literal and futurist understanding of Revelation. And they will read the opening of the scrolls, the blowing of the trumpets, the pouring out of the bowls of God's wrath as chronologically sequential events, like these seven things in the seals have to happen. Then these seven trumpets, have the, the, the events there have to happen, and, and only then can the bowls of wrath pour out. There are some who take a very literal perspective on it, and they see these as like chronologically sequential events in year in this certain you know year and within this time frame these seals have to take place and then the trumpets and then the bowls and so on in that way uh many those who read the the seal the excuse me the rest of the visions that way are, are imagining a specific order of events unfolding in what is commonly called the last days there are others who however throughout Christian history, who have read the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, as a threefold cycle of describing patterns and events that are taking place in human history from the ascension of Christ after his resurrection until he comes again in power and glory. 
You see these in parallel form. So the the seals are revealing the same thing as the trumpets, as the same thing as the bowls. It's a a threefold cycle through similar events that's sort of increasing in intensity uh, as we go along. But all three of these cycles, seals, judgments, bowls, are all more or less communicating the same thing, but from different perspectives as John sees it. Read this way, these cycles of judgment, and that's what they are, the seals, the trumpets, and bowls, it's heavy-duty stuff. It's all uh, pictures of God's judgment upon the world. These cycles of judgment demonstrate an, an intensification that highlights ultimately the perfection and the completeness of God's judgment on those who are unrepentant and the perfection and the completeness of God's preservation of those who bear his name in faith who conquer, who overcome, as Jesus encouraged all the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 to do, who conquer by faithful perseverance with Christ until the end. Now, personally, this is where where we may start to diverge. Some of you may have grown up with or been more influenced by a more literal, uh, a literalistic, uh, not a, 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 well, a literalistic futurist vision uh, or understanding of Revelation. Others may have have, uh, kind of, been more influenced by an idealist version of Revelation, that, uh, that uh, an idealist in the sense that Revelation is communicating broad themes through symbolic language, what God is doing. I, now, we all have to make a choice as to how we're going to read Revelation. Now, I believe, and you can disagree with me, it's okay. The way that we interpret the, the specific events and things in Revelation is not a matter of first importance for us as Christians. Uh, whether you're a premillennialist, an amillennialist, a postmillennialist, a pre-trib rapture person, a post-trib rapture person, a mid-trib rapture person, uh, regardless of how you interpret the, the events of Revelation, these are not things that make us Christian or not Christian, right? These are not first order issues. These issues of eschatology, the, the, the timeline, the carrying out of last things are more like third tier issues. They're not unimportant, but they, they are issues that serve to help us to dive deeper into God's Word, to press more into it for clarity of understanding. We should not find ourselves dividing over how we interpret the specific aspects of Revelation. Amen. Nevertheless, we have to make decisions about how we're going to read it. I've spent a lot of time and read a lot of pages <laughs> about how to read Revelation. And over the years, I believe, I've come to believe that the more appropriate way to read Revelation, which is a very, very symbolic book, heavily symbolic book, is to read it according to its symbols and read it according to its repetitive nature. Some would call it recapitulation. John is is saying the same thing a second time and a third time, but a slightly different way. He's recapitulating what's already what has already been said to emphasize it and to and to highlight its importance. So as we work through the rest of Revelation, I'm going to generally present a view that sees the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, not as chronologically sequential events, but as being different perspectives on the judgments of God and events of the world that have been taking place and will continue taking place until Christ returns in power and glory to usher in the eternal state. Now, as we work through the seals, I think you'll begin to see how, how a little bit about how I come to that. We could, we could spend a long time more time than we need to, talking about how to come to this conclusion. If you want some other resources, I'm happy to recommend them to you. But as we come to Revelation 6 and 7, and, and really the heart of this vision that the Lord Jesus has shown John, we see the Lamb of God opening the seven seals of the scroll that was there in the hand of the one seated on the throne in Revelation 4. 
And as the Lamb opens the seals, opens the scroll, what happens is that John sees a vision of God simultaneously working his judgment upon the world and his preservation of his people. Through specific events, God is doing two things at the same time. Judging sin and preserving his people. And so here's the main idea that comes to us from Revelation 6 and 7. And this is an idea that we're probably going to circle back to multiple times throughout the course of this study in Revelation. Is this, that great tribulation cannot threaten God's preservation of his people. Great tribulation cannot threaten God's preservation of his people. Can I say that even more plainly? Nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth can take God's people out of his hands or remove God's people from his care. And we see that specifically and and clearly as we work through the seals. So let's just go ahead and jump right in. The first eight verses describe to us in chapter 6, these four horsemen, as the first four seals of that scroll are open. And these first four horsemen reveal to us God's passive wrath against sin. God's passive wrath against sin. There in verse 1, the lamb takes the scroll from the father's hand and he begins to open the seals to reveal what is written on the scroll. We said last week the contents of the scroll are Everything that God has decreed to take place from the ascension of Christ after his resurrection from the dead until he comes again in power and glory. And we don't have to wait till all seven seals are open before the contents of that scroll uh, are, are revealed to us. As the first four seals are open, God gives permission and authority to four different horsemen who ride on horses of various colors. Now that's a horse of a different color. All week long, I was just thinking of that line from The Wizard of Oz who ride on horses of various colors. They're white, red, black, pale green. And these riders on these horses, these horsemen, these four horsemen who are not Ric Flair and Arn Anderson and those two other WCW wrestlers, uh, those of you who know, you, you know. But these four horsemen come to inflict conquest and to carry out war on the earth, to bring famine and ultimately pestilence and death on the world. Now we should view these horses and their riders as probably uh, the same horses and chariots that are described in an Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, chapters 1 and 6. These four horsemen, though they bring about disaster and conflict and scarcity, economic insecurity, ultimately death, we find that these are all agents of God. Notice, these these horsemen are, in order, given a crown permitted to take peace, given a great sword, given authority over a fourth of the earth. Who are they receiving all these things from? Who are they receiving a crown and and giving and and who are they getting permission from? And who's giving them this sword and who's giving them authority over a quarter of the earth? Well, the implication of the language is that it's God. God is the one who's giving them permission and authority to do these things. So how is it that God would use disaster to bring about his purposes, to serve his intentions. How can such terrible things serve the purposes of God? On one hand, power-grabbing kings, like the rider on the white horse, who's a picture of of military conquest, power-grabbing kings who seek their own glory, start wars that cause famines and lead to death. And as they do this, they are, always, they are doing what they and their sinful hearts always love to do. 
Friends, this, this picture, even as we see now playing out in, in Eastern Europe uh, between uh, Russia and Ukraine, a power-grabbing, power-hungry despot, Vladimir Putin, is waging war against Ukraine so that he can take it back and make it part of the glory of, of, of Russia from its past. He is, he, so power-grabbing king, bringing conquest or, or, or seeking to, to, to have conquest, brings war upon another nation, and that war has led to famine in the land. It's interesting that, that Ukraine is kind of like the world's breadbasket. They're the, the, the global leader in wheat production, and so wheat prices are expected to, to increase, and, and, and that, you know, quite, quite a lot. And we see that, that following war, there's often sickness and death and all this sort of stuff in its wake. What John is describing is a picture of the kinds of wars led by despotic, power-hungry kings that have waged throughout the centuries. God is not, even when this happens and continues to happen over and over, God is not unjust. He's not wrong. He's not out of his lane to allow sinners to go on in their sin. And that's what God is doing, even presently now with this whole Russia-Ukraine situation. He's allowing Vladimir Putin to go on in his sin. In fact, Romans 1 tells us that all people have sought to glorify themselves over God. All of us do this. All of us seek our own glory over God's glory. And that God has seen fit among those who, who refuse to repent, who refuse to worship Him, God has seen fit to say to sinners who repeatedly reject Him, if it's sin that you love and it's sin that you want, then sin and all of its fruits you may have. Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, 28, all say the same thing, that God gave them up. He gave unrepentant sinners up. He gave them over to do what their wicked hearts desired. This is, strangely, it may seem ironic, this is the passive wrath of God. The passive wrath of God. That God allows people to reap what they have sown in sin. The horseman, the white rider, the red rider, the black rider, the pale green rider, all symbolize in a graphic way, in in a visual picture, the real consequences of those who reject God's gracious advances toward us in Christ and what comes after it. Sinners who are left to go on in their sin, seek power and start wars and create famines that lead to death. When we reject the truth that Christ died for sins and rose again as Lord to be worshipped, then God is just to let us have what our sinful hearts desire. These horsemen who I believe are the results, uh, uh, give a picture, a graphic illustration of the results of God allowing sinners to continue in unrepentant sin, are not new to us. We're well acquainted with this pattern as we look at human history. And at the same time, we find that, that these four horsemen are not all consuming. The whole earth is not consumed by conquest. The whole earth is not uh, in the chaos of war. The whole earth is not Uh, deprived of food. The whole earth is not dead. Even these horsemen who have their authority given to them by God have limited ultimate effect. Their authority is limited because it's borrowed. It's delegated. Death is only given authority over a fraction of the earth, a quarter, John says. This is to say that even while sin abounds in human history and on the earth, that God is still gracious and merciful to limit its total effect. 
And since the lamb conquered by his dying and his rising, God has been gracious. Since that moment, God has been gracious. And until the lamb returns in power and glory, God will continue to be gracious and continue to be merciful. These horsemen are not signs of the end of all things, but they're signs that God's justice and mercy will continue until the end. It's interesting that this is not the first picture that we have of, of or reference of uh, uh, things seeming to be somewhat out of control going on and on until the end comes. When his disciples wanted to know the day and the hour of the end of all things, Jesus said to the twelve, he said in Matthew 24, beginning of verse 4, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Even Jesus seems to say to his disciples, there's going to be war and rumors of war. Kingdoms are going to be at enmity with one another. Famine will plague the earth. There will be pestilence. There will be death. Don't freak out. This isn't the end. These things will continue until the end. Friends, the horsemen, the four horsemen of Revelation 6, have been riding and will ride as long as God allows sinners to walk in their sin. As we come to understand what these four horsemen symbolize, this ongoing cycle of sinful people wanting power and bringing death and economic insecurity into the world, we need to to hear this warning. We need to not, we must not, underestimate the danger of sin, nor underestimate the mercy of God. As we see these four horsemen, and think about what they symbolize, war, conquest, famine, death, going on in a, limited, in a limited way from the ascension of Christ until his return, we need to, in light of that, not underestimate the danger of our sin nor underestimate the mercy of God. As these cycles of conquest, war, economic insecurity, plagues, death, continue through the ages, we can easily be lulled by their repetition, like we've seen this again, just all over. We can easily be lulled into believing this is just the way things have always been. It's the way that they'll always be. People fight. Wars go on. Sometimes there's plagues. Sometimes there's famine. Everybody dies eventually. Big whoop. The limited and sometimes passing nature of these tribulations has caused many throughout history to believe that we can somehow, we can overcome this, right? Our whole world is not turned upside down in disaster, and, and we as human beings, we're smart. We can figure stuff out. The, the enlightenment of the 1700s really pushed us far down that road to think, ah, oh, through understanding the natural sciences, physical sciences, we can answer every question that there is. And ultimately, we as a people can progress to a point of, of, of peace and prosperity through the help of science and reason. We can figure this out. The reason that this pattern of affliction, though, of war and conquest and suffering and famine and death, the reason that it keeps cropping up, the reason that World War II put an end to all of that enlightenment thinking that we can, we can progress to a point of peace as we drop two atomic bombs on Japan, is because our greatest enemy is not the stuff that we can't fix in the world. 
Our greatest enemy is not war. Our greatest enemy is not famine. Our greatest enemy is not pestilence or plague. Our greatest enemy is is not even death. Our greatest enemy is the sin of our hearts that God in His justice allows us to be handed over to, allows us to pursue. There are power-hungry people in the world because we love ourselves more than God. There are wars raging in the world because we want our kingdom to grow more than we want God's kingdom to grow. There's famine and pestilence and plague on the earth because we, want, we, we greedily want more for ourselves and not to share with anyone so much to the point that we'll allow much to go to waste just so that we can have it all for ourselves. And we know that just because of, because of our sin, as we look at the, the curse of the fall in Genesis 3, creation is broken. People get sick and die because of our rebellion against God. We have, we have broken His intended order for things. We come to see by the cycling events, the, the cycles of power, war, pestilence, famine, hunger, death, that really none of these things are our greatest threat, but the sin that spurs all them on is. We can be easily thought to think our, our, our sin is not that big of a deal because these things have always been ongoing. But the reason these things are always ongoing is because sin never stops in our hearts. But on the other hand, we must not either come to assume that our sin is not that, not that big of a deal. Uh, Surely, if it were really that bad, if sin was really all that terrible, God would have put it to an end long ago, right? Well, the danger of this kind of thinking is that it makes too little of the real consequences of sin. The wages of sin, God has said, is death. But even as God did not put Adam and Eve to death at the first moment of their sin, so also is He patient with this present world, not wanting any to perish, but calling all people to repentance. The limited nature, the limited effect of these four horsemen as they ride in the uh, ongoing sin of the human heart, the limited nature of it speaks to the grace of God, that He's not allowed sin to have its full and all-consuming effect among humanity. This, friends, is a mercy of God, that in His patience... He is, he is mitigating, He is limiting the devastation of sin so that others may hear the gospel and believe. The four horsemen call us to see the things that are going on in the world and to realize that our sin really is dangerous and God's mercy really is great. We move on though. John's vision doesn't stop there. goes on to see two more seals, the fifth and the sixth seals opening. The fifth seal, an image of the souls of martyrs under the altar of God, probably just a picture of them there in the very presence of God crying out for justice. And the sixth seal, which seems to be God's final judgment, <clears throat> his active wrath against sin in the world. God's permission of sin throughout the course of the four horsemen, God's permission of sin to continue does two things. On the one hand, it proves his justice as sin bears out the consequences of death and destruction that he himself promised that sin would have. But it also serves to purify his saints. God's permission of sin to continue in the world is for the purpose of purifying his saints. Time and again in Scripture, we're reminded that the hardship and the suffering that believers endure from an unbelieving world, these things are meant for our sanctification. The four horsemen are simultaneously God's agents of his divine judgment and also his agents of sanctification of his people. 
They're meant for our increased dependence upon God in times of hardship and the establishment of our faith in Him, even as we endure the same difficulties and affliction that much of the unbelieving world does. Sometimes willful sinners take the lives of God's people because of their unwillingness to go along in sin. And the fifth seal, as it's open, shows John a different picture. Not of four horsemen, but now the the image moves. Now again to that heavenly throne room of God. And John sees a picture of the souls of saints who have been slain or who have otherwise died in faithful perseverance. These are those who have overcome by persevering in faith until the end. They're in heaven crying out to God for justice. When will you... When will you unleash, God, all of your divine justice against sin? When will it happen? They're crying out, not because God is unjust, but because they long for His final judgment to come and to vindicate His righteousness forever. They're not concerned about the state of their own souls. They're not saying, God, when will you vindicate us? They're saying, God, when will you vindicate yourself? When will you let all of your righteous justice pour out upon the earth? God turns to them and he says, the time is not yet. You need to rest. You need to wait a little while longer. And as he comforts their souls, he gives them garments of, uh, of white to be clothed in, uh, garments of righteousness, that they might have rest in the presence of God until the sixth seal is open. The sixth seal, when it's opened, reveals God's final, not his passive wrath, but his active wrath against sin. In this seal, there's an earthquake. The sun disappears. The moon becomes like blood. Stars fall like leaves from a tree. The sky vanishes. Every mountain and island are laid low. This language, if you're familiar with Scripture at all, should be very familiar to you. You should hear lots of echoes from those Old Testament prophets. Over and over and over again, almost these exact same images are used in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Habakkuk. And this is language, this this. this Physical, cataclysmic kind of language is what is often used by prophets to describe what is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day of God's final judgment and justice. It's a day that all of his people look forward to when God will vindicate his righteousness on the earth. Now this cataclysmic language of the sun disappearing, the moon becoming blood, the sky going away, all that it can be kind of terrifying if we think about it as being literal images. Like if these things actually happen... In that way, that would be terrifying. But this language is, is consistently a part of this apocalyptic genre of literature in the Old Testament. It's intentionally figurative language. It's meant not to describe the sun literally disappearing, but to describe the kind of total disillusion of worldly systems and worldly dependences that all will go away when God appears in judgment. His justice will come in his perfect timing and it will come in full. And when it comes, nothing and no one will be able to hide from it. That's what this this cataclysmic language describes. There's nothing in all the universe that can escape the judgment of God. When he comes, there's nothing that can stand in his presence. Political power, social status, military might will all be useless on that day. We read in the language of the sixth uh, uh, sixth seal, that everyone uh, from the highest place, kings to the lowest place, servants and the poor, even slaves, all of them are going to be subject to God's wrath. There's no one that can hide. That's why this cataclysmic language is, is used, uh, because it describes the, the depth of, the, the vastness of what happens when God appears. Everything is undone. 
In light of these two seals, the fifth and the sixth seal, friends, be reminded today, we don't make too little of the danger of sin. We don't make too little of the mercy of God. We also don't want to make little of God's justice. That old adage, justice delayed is justice denied, is in some sense right and true. We should pursue justice for crimes and for the most heinous sins because God is just. It seems here, though, in the fifth and sixth seal, that God is delaying his justice. He tells the saints, wait a little while longer. They they say, when is justice coming? He says, not yet. According to our sense of timeliness, it does seem that God is delaying his justice. But in this sense, this is not justice denied. Surely, God's final justice is not to vindicate believers. It's not to vindicate us, but to vindicate his own holy character and to vindicate his own righteousness. So if God delays justice, he's only denying it for a time for himself. But hear me, friends. The sixth seal, as it's opened, reminds us God will not delay his justice forever. Justice for sin and wrath against those who have rebelled against him is coming. Do not be tempted to think that just because his justice tarries, that it will not come at all. His vengeance is sure. God's wrath is inescapable. That's what this picture is showing us. Do not make little of God's justice. He will do what is right. If you hear my voice today, friend, know that there is but one way to escape the wrath of God. It is by repenting of your sins in sorrow over them and by wholly, entirely submitting to Jesus as Lord, the Lamb who is slain for your sins and raised again to life. Don't make little of God's justice. Though it tarries, it will come. And when it comes, it comes in full, and no one is able to hide from it. But this vision goes on. It continues in chapter 7. Follow along in your Bibles. John says, After this, after these six seals were opened, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with a seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh and Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Chapter 7 and the first verses of chapter 8 take a short interlude from the opening of the seals to show John something else. And what John sees in the majority of chapter 7 is this great multitude who are God's perfect, preserved people. Following the terrifying image of God's final judgment on sin in the sixth seal. Everything is dissolved when God comes in justice. There is a question at the end of chapter 6. Did you see it? The people are, are running. Everyone from high to low is running for the hills, saying uh, to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. For, great is the, day, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand in the presence of God when he comes? This is the question that the the end of the sixth seal leaves us with. And this is the the question that the interlude in chapter 7 is trying to answer. After John hears this question, who can stand? He's shown a heavenly reality. It's a picture of angels holding back the wind of God's judgment so that the judgment of God might not harm those that he is going to seal or has sealed. Those who are marked with his name as belonging to him. That's what that image of a seal is. And John hears who the sealed are. Their number is 144,000. He hears this. This is obviously a very symbolic number. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. It's a figurative number of the complete fullness of persons that belong to God. And John hears that they come from the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there are some problems with the tribes that are listed. If you've uh, spent uh, much time in the Old Testament, or maybe as a a child you memorized all the names of the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, you would recognize some issues. First of all, Judah is listed first in this list, but Judah is not the firstborn. Judah is the fourthborn. Why does he come at the beginning of of this list? Well, because the lamb who was slain, those who belong to the lamb, belong to the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Judah gets a place of prominence in this list. There are two brothers, two sons that are excluded, Dan and Ephraim. Dan, who's one of the sons of Israel, is excluded, uh, and, and Ephraim both likely because of their long history throughout the course of the Old Testament of giving themselves over to idolatry. So much so that God has, has seemed to have cut these two off from among his old covenant people. And they're replaced with two others, Joseph and Levi. Now, Levi was normally not listed in the list of brothers. He was replaced, well, and neither was Joseph. Joseph was replaced with his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
And Levi uh, was, was kind of excluded altogether. So you still had, you had Levi and Joseph normally taken out, but Ephraim and Manasseh added. But now Levi and Joseph are back in. Levi was normally not listed among the, the people of God because his, iner- his inheritance or the inheritance of the tribe was not a piece of land, but it was service in the temple. So normally they're not listed in that way. Joseph had two sons and they were both blessed uh, by Jacob, his father. That's why they get added. But again, Ephraim is one of his sons and that tribe went off into idolatry. So he and Dan are removed. Joseph and Levi are included. What's the point? John, I don't know. I think the picture is this. I think John is making a point to say, particularly in the exclusion of Dan and Ephraim, that those who are walking in idolatry, in unrepentant idolatry, do not have a place among God's people. Though, and, and we saw this regularly throughout the two letter, the, the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, that those churches who had compromised their faith were at, uh, by, by serving idols were at danger of, of, of having their witness as a church of Jesus Christ removed altogether. So John hears who the sealed are, this figurative number of the fullness of God's people, and they're all from the tribe of Judah. But then he looks and he sees what it was that he heard about. He hears about... 144,000 Jews. But when he turns and looks, he doesn't see 144,000 Jews or 144,000 sons of Israel, but instead a vast, innumerable, multi-ethnic multitude. These two images are not, friends, describing two different groups, but the same group. In the same way that John heard in Revelation 4 and 5, he heard about a lion from the tribe of Judah and he saw a lamb standing as though slain. So also here in Revelation 7, he hears about 144,000, but he sees a vast multi-ethnic multitude. This beautifully diverse people standing before John as he sees them are the sealed, the protected servants of God who do not replace ethnic Israel as God's people, but who bring fullness and meaning to God's original intention and covenant with ethnic Israel. The church of Jesus Christ, the 144,000 symbolic number who are a great multi-ethnic multitude are not a new Israel, but as a king, but they are king, a kingdom and priests to God, ransomed by Christ. They compose not a new Israel, but the true Israel of God. And that's who John sees in this multi-ethnic multitude. And these are the ones who are the answer to the question in chapter 6, verse 17. Who can stand in the day of God's judgment? These ones, these ones who belong to the Lord. These are the ones who have endured the great tribulation of God's passive wrath, who have conquered by their patient and obedient faithfulness to Jesus in the face of persecution. These are the ones who can stand when God comes in all of his righteous wrath. Why? Because they have been cleansed by the blood of the lamb and stand justified to God who comes in justice. Now that phrase, great tribulation, probably already sent your mind off thousand different directions and timelines and interesting illustrations. I'm not going to take a hard literal stance on this term great tribulation as being, as some would say, a specific seven year period of time that must take place before Jesus returns. Rather, I I think like scholar Alexander Stewart does, he says this, the phrase great tribulation in Revelation is not a technical phrase that refers to a seven-year period, but rather it describes the entire period of time between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming as a time of great tribulation, of great difficulty, of affliction. 
This is in line, he says, with the rest of the New Testament, which views tribulation as a present reality for God's people. That aside, the purpose of John receiving this confirmation of God's preserving work of all of his people among all ages is to encourage saints who are experiencing affliction to keep enduring. Why does God give John this picture? To encourage those churches who were reading about God's coming wrath and asking who can stand in the day of his coming. And God gives John this picture to say, everyone who has been sealed with the name of the Lamb, everyone who belongs to the Lord, has nothing to fear on the day of his judgment. They are the ones that can stand confident in his presence. Though the forces of this world may attempt to tear you limb from limb, to destroy your conscience, to force you to compromise on your faith, God has held his people, John says. God is holding his people and God will hold his people securely in the grasp of his perfect preserving hand. There is nothing that can remove them. And their ultimate home is not in this world, torn asunder by the wrath of God, but their home is in the shelter of the conquering lamb, as that elder says that elder in the throne room of God, where no more tears of pain will fall from their eyes and no more cries for justice will be heard because God will have finished all of his work. In light of this image of this great multitude, dear Christian, take heart. Take heart. Be encouraged. God will preserve your soul. This is a beautiful truth of Revelation 7. Yes, God's wrath is certain. His wrath is certainly coming. But there is hope. And forgiveness, there's strength to stand on the day of his justice for everyone who belongs to him. So friend, are you certain of this? Are you certain that you are his? Are you certain that you belong among this vast, innumerable, multi-ethnic multitude who are the true people of God? You may have that confidence today. You can have confidence that you are among that number preserved by God. And you can have confidence in that reality, not by your ethnic heritage, nor by your social status, nor by your wealth, nor even by all the good things you have ever done. You can have confidence that you are among the people of God if you have received the seal of God, which is, which is, which is to belong to him. And it is given to everyone who has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed it. The apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, He says, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God's saying, that one is mine. He who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Take heart, Christian. If your life is hidden in Christ, you are his, and you can stand in the day of his judgment with confidence, knowing that the price for your sin has already been paid in full. But the seals aren't over yet. There's still one more. I'll be brief. The seventh seal, which comes to us in the first verses of chapter 8, has God rendering his final verdict. The first verses of chapter 8 have the lamb opening the final seal. And it's interesting, nothing happens. Instead, there's an hour of silence in heaven. The kind of silence there is the kind of silence that fills a courtroom when the judge takes his seat. It's a, it's a reverence. It is a preparation for verdict. This is because the judge of all the universe has taken his seat. 
And a servant of the court, an angel, comes and he pours out the prayers of all the saints. uh, Possibly prayers for justice, as we saw in the opening of the fifth seal. And the prayers of the saints are answered in power from God with this formulaic uh, 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 grouping of, of responses. There's peals of thunder, rumblings. Flashes of lightning, an earthquake. We saw all of these things last week in chapter 4. We'll see them again at the end of the seven trumpets and we'll see them again at the end of the seven bowls. These in order, as they occur at the end of each cycle of the seals, trumpets, and bowls, all indicate the final judgment of God, which closes this earthly age and issues the beginning of the eternal state. So I think we have at the end of the seven seals a picture of God's final judgment for sin, and his ushering in of the eternal state. We have a, a picture of, as, as the saints of God are there uh, in the midst of the, of the Lamb on his throne who is shepherding his people, who's guiding them to springs of living water, where God is wiping away every tear from their eyes, already we're getting a picture, we're getting a look into eternity at the end of the sixth seal. And the seventh seal is just to say God has rendered his verdict. It is certain. Know this this morning. In light of these seven seals, and particularly this last one, of God's certain verdict as he speaks with thunder from his throne in heaven, that God's final verdict calls all of us either to rejoice or to repent. When God speaks in power from his throne, the response of those who hear his voice is either to rejoice or repent. This is the crux of the matter this morning, isn't it? All along the way in Revelation, all the rest of the way throughout this vision, the person, the presence, the judgments of God will divide people into two groups. There are those who rejoice in the Lamb and those who mourn at His coming. Those who rejoice are those who have been saved by Him, have been sealed for His purposes, who are preserved through judgment because they've repented of their sin and belong to Him. Those who mourn are those who, as we'll see in later chapters, dwell on the earth. These are earth dwellers. That is to say, their mind is only on the things of the earth. And they continue in their hateful disobedience to God. The truth that is before us from here on out in Revelation, we'll see it over and again, is that those who mourn their sin and lean on Christ will rejoice with joy inexpressible at His coming. But those who rejoice in their sin today and reject Jesus will mourn with incomparable sorrow at his coming. If you have repented and trusted Christ as Lord, rejoice today, Christian, knowing that God will set things right. His perfect judgment, his perfect justice is coming in his perfect timing. But my friend, if you're still rejoicing in your sin or otherwise putting off the call to trust Jesus Hear and heed the wisdom of repentance and faith. Hear the call to turn from sin and trust the Lamb who will wash you white as snow and bring you into His presence, make you one of His people. Hear that wisdom. Heed that wisdom. Respond to God's verdict with repentance from sin and faith in Jesus, not only to escape judgment, but for the knowledge of real joy and freedom in Christ. That's what He is calling us to. That's what repentance leads to, not just fire insurance from hell, but real and abundant life and joy in the God who made us to know and love and worship him. And that joy only comes through trusting the lamb who shed his blood for your sins. Church, the great tribulation that the world has known 
Over the last 2,000 years, as God hands sinners over to the results of their sin, has often led to affliction for believers. We see it happening. We see it happening as Christians around the world are afflicted today by the sinful acts of despotic governments and hateful individuals who want to see God's people destroyed. But there is no affliction, there is no tribulation that can undo the just and gracious determination of God to preserve His people through tribulation, even through judgment and into eternity. Those who belong to the Lamb will endure affliction for the comfort of knowing Christ. But those who seek the comfort of the world will know the just affliction of a righteous God. Brothers and sisters, may the Spirit of God give us ears to hear this truth today and to respond either in rejoicing or in repentance. Let's pray.